Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Fatal, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. Hello, and welcome to Stem Fatale, your women in science history podcast. This is our noir episode. <laughs> I am your host, <laughs> Emlyn, like Gremlin. And I am your other host, Emlyn. Are you Dracula? <laughs> Emma Dilemma. Wait, how like, would Dracula say that? Emma. Emma. <laughs> no, don't think that. Um, uh, dilemma. Oh, that's good. Is that dilemma. it? Dilemma. Dilemma. You didn't like it? I, I didn't like me doing oh, okay. it. Sorry, okay. you were really good at oh, it. Oh, wow. Thanks. Quit my day job. <laughs> well, welcome back. This is our um, Women in Science History podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. We talk about old women and new women. Old women and current women. <laughs> Scratch that. I don't think this will ever get not no. uncomfortable doing the int- doing our intro banter. We talk about dead women and living women. Super dead, super alive. Yes, yeah, super alive. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? All right, let's get started. I was just trying to think of like we had any announcements up top, mm. but I don't think so yet. So here's my question for you then. Are you ready? So ready. Emlyn. Gremlin Emlyn. Yes. No, I can't, I can't keep... <laughs> yes. Emma Dilemma would like to know, how would you go about establishing a causative relationship between a microbe and a disease? Oh, uh, well, if I have... Do I have a microscope? You got everything. I got everything. Me. Okay. Yeah. I find a sick person. Yeah. I take a lot of samples. Sure. I look at the samples under a microscope. I see some weird stuff. Uh-huh. And then I eat, I do, try two things. <laughs> I take some of that sample from the, under the microscope and inject it into a person. Oof. Because I'm guessing this is like 1800s when that, that's <laughs> totally fine. Or you do straight person to person Oh my gosh, you're just going person to person first. You're not doing any, like, trial runs. No, no. I'm um, just, I've listened to a lot of Sawbones. Oh, Which is a medical history that. podcast, and they Ooh. talk about what people used to do to each other. Oh so I'm just God. assuming that's what would have been their first thought. That's like, have you heard the story about how the first vaccine was ever discovered? No, Maybe. Um, I think his name is Edward Jenner, like, just injected cowpox into a child. Yes, and yes, And then exposed him to people with smallpox yep. and was like, oh, good. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty amazing. It's good that it worked out yeah. for all of humanity, really, but 
Oh, did you mean how I would do this now when there's, like, ethics? Yeah, or um, anytime. Just how do you show, even theoretically, that a microbe causes a disease? I'm going to stick with my original. I think you're good, yeah. yeah. I think you got it. Okay. So, there was a guy, actually two guys, who came up with four postulates for how to do this in 1884. So, we're talking about dudes? No, no, no. Okay. I'm just going to... Tell you this as because <laughs> my eyes turn red. It's relevant later. What if I just decided to not tell a story about a woman? <laughs> it would be very controversial. I wanted some, to do something different, <laughs> something new. Um, Robert Koch and Friedrich uh, Loeffler came up with four postulates that are criteria to establish a causative relationship between a microbe and a disease, like in 1884. Okay. And let's see, what are these criteria? The organism, the microbe, it must be found in all organisms suffering from the disease, but should not be found in healthy organisms, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. It must be isolated from a diseased organism and grown in pure culture. Okay. And the cultured organism should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. That's what you were trying to do. Yep. (laughs) And it must be re-isolated from the inoculated, diseased experimental host and identified as being identical to the original specific causative agent. So after you eject it into the other person, you have to find it again. And make sure it's in them and co- that's still what's causing the disease. Gotcha. Okay, so these have been um, sort of discredited for a lot of different microorganisms over the years, some of which we'll talk about today. Well, some you can't culture, right? That's, yeah. They're just very difficult to and, culture. Yeah, it's even pure. Because, yeah, it's hard to culture all microbes. And when the microbes are in an organism, they can be in an in an organism, it can be healthy. Yes, yeah. Which the first postulate said, if the microbe is in an organism, they must be not healthy. Mm-hmm. They must have the disease. So we know now that like a lot of viruses and stuff can just stay within you forever, mm-hmm. not doing anything. And some people have different immune responses or susceptibilities, so they yeah. don't get the same disease um, symptoms. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so these postulates, while informative originally in microbiology and helping the people to design experiments to show that microbes cause specific diseases, they actually held back one field a little bit. Hmm. And that is the field of virology and um, viruses that cause cancer. So, today. Wait, wait, wait. I have a comment oh. about that. Okay, okay. That's so not worth it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Love it. Yeah, okay, continue. (laughs) Right, so today we're going to talk about the discovery of viruses that cause cancer. And a woman who was crucial to showing that and making people believe, making scientists believe that viruses can cause cancer. Viruses that cause cancer are terrifying and very yeah, fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say cool, but it's not they're not cool. They're well, just fast. They're cool while being like awful. Yeah. 
like in the way that sharks are cool. I mean, but sharks are good for their ecosystem. Yeah. Sharks are good as long as <laughs> they're, they're not eating. Scary too. Yeah. Okay. Our lady today, her name is Sarah Elizabeth Stewart. You ever heard of her? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have not. So she was born on August 16th, 1905 in Tecalitlan in the state of Jalisco in Mexico. Oh, okay. And her mother was from that region. Her father, however, was an American mining engineer working in that area, which I presume is how they met. I did not find any information on the romance <laughs> between her mother and father. That's disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when she was five years old, the family moved to the United States. It seems like they were in Oregon, but I also don't know that. There wasn't a lot about her childhood. Gotcha. And she lived the rest of her life in the U.S., but remained fluent in Spanish because she could speak with her mother and her siblings in Spanish. Like, they were all fluent, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So we're going to start with her undergrad because really, yeah, nothing about her childhood that I could find. It's all a mystery. Yeah. We'll leave that to her. <laughs> so she um, went to undergrad at the New Mexico State University at Las Cruces. And she graduated with two degrees, one in science and one in home ec. Okay. In 1927. And one story about her stated that she actually approached the president of the university and requested to be allowed to get degrees in both topics because that was unusual for the time to get two degrees. Yeah, nice. So she went to the president. Going straight to the yeah, top. Yeah, she's like, what, 20 probably? Yeah, pretty cool. Then she worked for a time as a bacteriologist in the Colorado Experiment Station. I don't know what that means or what she did there. All right. Um, she then went to went on to get a master's degree from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in 1930, where she studied botulism, oh. which is like food poisoning caused by bacteria. Yeah, real bad. Yeah. Botulism's nasty. It's like... Um, and I think it's the reason why babies aren't allowed to eat honey. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's uh, what people worry about with canned foods because it has to yeah. be anaerobic. It's like an anaerobic bacteria. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think it kills you, like, yeah. very likely because it not... affects your uh, nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, it's nasty. But yeah. you also inject that into your face to get Botox. Oh, yeah, that's right. I always forget that Botox is botulism toxin. Yeah. Why are you putting that in your face? Hey, it makes you look fucking good. <laughs> Forever. Uh, I can't afford Botox, but maybe when I'm rich and famous one day. JK, that will never happen. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> we should just have like those morning radio shows that they just, just have like wow Richard oh man yeah I'll work on it I need a, we need a soundboard <laughs> yes yeah. what's a good science-y sound effect like bubbling like uh I can't make that sound. All right. Sarah Stewart, our lady of the hour, 
kind of just running through this sort of educational period because she got like a million degrees and it's and there's not a lot on like exactly what she researched for Mm -hmm. a lot of these so so yeah she got her master's degree botulism 1930 and then she went to work as a bacteria bacteriologist someone who studies bacteria um, with the United States Public Health Service at the NIH, the National Institute of Health in Washington, D.C. In 1935, she took a break from that job to get a Ph.D. Okay. <laughs> in microbiology. Doesn't sound like a break to me. I know. <laughs> um, at the University of Chicago, where her sister, Laura, was a grad student. Nice. So she was like, I'm just going to go get a Ph.D. Real quick. Yeah. Um, after her PhD, four years later, of course, nice. she's very efficient, she went back to work at the NIH. Her first year back, they didn't pay her because it was sort of the end of the depression mm. and they didn't have money, but over time, they started paying her again. That's good. Which is nice. Um, and during World War II, she worked on developing toxoids for therapeutic use. What's the difference between toxins and toxoids? No idea. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All this time, she really wanted to do research on cancer because cancer was prevalent in her family. Mm. And in 1944, she requested, this is at the NIH, she requested support to study the link between animal tumors and viruses. Okay. The directors of the NIH Lab of Microbiology and the National Cancer Institute refused her proposal on grounds that it seemed dubious, like they didn't believe that viruses could cause cancer, and that she lacked appropriate qualifications. Even though she had a master's degree and a PhD, she needed an MD, they said, to study this. Yeah. And I think part of that was like she wanted to study it in humans. Yeah. And so they were like, you need it to do that. But I don't know. Rather than give up on her passion to study of viruses and cancer, and she was adamant that viruses could cause cancer. Do, do you know what, do you know why she thought that at this um, time? Get to that okay. in a okay. sec, yeah. She, so adamant that this is going on and she really wanted to study it, she resigned and became a bacteriology instructor at Georgetown University School of Medicine, which at the time didn't allow women to enroll. Okay. So, however, a couple years later in 1947, they did start letting women enroll. And while she was an instructor, she just was like auditing med school classes, like hoping to basically get enough experience that way Mm -hmm. to, to do the research that she wanted to do. Gotcha. But finally, they did let women enroll in 1947. And two years later, she had an MD. Okay. The first woman ever to get an empty from Georgetown. Okay. And speedily um, at that. Yeah, I think it's the shortest record in the whole <laughs> university still in in time getting a med degree. Yeah. Yeah. So she has a master's degree, two undergrad degrees, a PhD, and an MD. <laughs> She's a smart lady. Yeah. She seems qualified. Yeah. And so at that time, she was still determined to work on viruses and cancer. And she wrote up another protocol to investigate whether human leukemia, which is like a blood cancer, mm-hmm. um, is induced 
by viruses. Um, and she submitted this proposal to Dr. John Heller, who was the director of the National Cancer Institute at NIH. He seemed receptive, but um, and he still gave her an assignment in gynecology instead. A little different. I wonder, I was wondering how much of that, like, might be because she's a woman and was just like, oh, you're a woman, like, just... Vagina, vagina. (laughs) You know vaginas. (laughs) You got one. Man, being a gynecologist, if you don't want to be a gynecologist, sounds rough. It's like, I mean, I didn't read anywhere that that was another interest of hers. (laughs) It's just like, she wanted to study viruses that cause cancer, and they're like, how about you do gynecology for a bit? (laughs) I mean, gynecologists are cool. I mean, maybe she did, like, really well in her gynecology class. I don't know. (laughs) But anyway... So this is all pretty short amount of time. So she wasn't like a gynecologist for more than two years, really. Um, She was reassigned to the Marine Hospital in Baltimore and allowed to finally begin work on cancer. So at this point, a few other researchers had found pretty substantial evidence that viruses might cause cancer, but nobody believed it, (laughs) except for like a few people like Sarah Stewart. Yeah. So, for instance, in 1911, Peyton Rue showed that chicken tumors can be transmitted between individuals by injecting viruses or a substance. I don't know if he knew it was a virus, yeah. but injecting a substance that had been filtered from cells. Hmm. So people had tried to repeat this process in mammals for like 10 years after that and were unsuccessful. So... It led to the idea that viruses can't cause cancer in mammals. Okay. Like, they sort of thought maybe it's just in chickens that this thing happened once. And it became really unpopular, and it became got to the point where people who studied viruses that cause cancer were, like, looked down on by other scientists. Weird, because it was just so out of left field. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. The, so the idea was doctors and pathologists were like, I work with cancer patients and I don't have cancer. So it can't be transmittable. Mm-hmm. You know, cancer is not transmittable. That was the idea. Yeah. So I think that's why people were so against um, even studying it, like yeah. people studying it, is because they weren't like catching cancer right and left. Mm-hmm. But obviously, like we know now, it takes years sometimes for a virus to cause cancer yeah and not all viruses are transmitted through like con just like saying hi to someone yeah so richard shope in the 20s showed that papillomavirus caused warts in rabbits but this brought about little enthusiasm because they were benign tumors In the 1930s, John Bittner discovered what he called a milk factor because he didn't want to call it a virus because he was afraid people would not believe it was Mm. real. Uh And this is true for, like, decades in this field. A milk factor? Yeah, oh, wait, yeah, sorry. I didn't explain what that (laughs) (laughs) It's a virus that can be transmitted from mother mites to offspring and cause mammary cancer. Oh, okay. So I think it's transmitted in their milk. Gotcha. 
Um, the mouse mammary tumor virus is what it's called now. Oh, yeah. Sad. Yeah, he called it the milk factor instead of a milk virus to avoid negative reactions, including from grant-giving places. Like, people, if you propose anything about viruses causing cancer, no one would give you a grant. So strange. I know. Like, just no one wanted to believe it was true, even though, like, these three studies were provided pretty good evidence that something transmitted between individuals can cause cancer. Mm -hmm. So let's see. Even people who knew that the milk factor was a virus, like his friends, uh, John Bittner's friends, I guess, they still didn't think it was like that applicable because the virus wasn't necessary or sufficient for tumor induction. So like, Things could have the virus and not get a tumor, mm-hmm. which we also know now is like pretty common with yeah. vi- like viruses affect different hosts differently and almost random sometimes. Anyway, so they still didn't really like believe it was the virus. Yeah. Okay. A major discovery. So this is kind of background, and I think that these initial studies are why Sarah was interested in this at all. Mm-hmm. So there Makes was sense. evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And a major discovery that led directly into Sarah's work was by Ludwig Gross, um, an American researcher who, in 1951, so this is the same time she started researching, he published a couple papers showing that he could pass leukemia between mice. Mm, okay. So he could, like... Um, take a mouse that he knows that that has leukemia and get cells from it and and induce leukemia in another mouse by injecting those cells into that mouse. Gotcha. Which you can't just do that with any cancer. No. Or... Uh, Side note, why is Ludwig not a name anymore? I don't know. So popular back in the day. Ludwig. Ludwig. Gonna bring it back. Yeah, I like his name. Ludwig Gross. He's actually kind of a major player, and they were um, sort of friendly rivals. Though it's, it doesn't seem like it was friendly at certain points. Yeah. Yeah, they were very competitive with each other. Okay. And a lot of this information in the next part is from a study done on their relationship. Ooh. Which we'll post online, like, and you can read, but it's all really interesting. It's about him. And then includes a lot of how she kind of, like, fit into his work. But I'm now fitting him into her work. I like it. Anyway, yeah. yeah. I think so in gross. his work... Yeah. <laughs> Ludwig Gross. Yeah. Yeah. Great name. The Grosses. Yeah. And he had been... He is really interesting. Like, he was also obsessed with the idea that viruses cause cancer and had been, like, studying this out of the back of his car when <laughs> nobody freaking believed him. Kind of thing. That's how you got to do it sometimes. I know, yeah. So, yeah, he published a paper showing he could pass leukemia between mice. And so um, he also showed that he could take... Uh, this is kind of gross, but... Tell me. Yeah. Tell me everything. He followed that with an experiment where he used ground-up embryos from... <laughs> mice embryos? Okay. Yeah. From a four-month-old female that was in good health but whose mother and grandmother had leukemia. So she 
had the virus but wasn't showing any symptoms. Okay. And when he injected her embryos into a healthy mouse, it developed leukemia. Oh. Yeah. And so going back to those postulates from the beginning. Yes. Um, those postulates are one of the reasons why people didn't believe viruses can cause cancer. The whole idea that you, it was super hard to, like, culture viruses. Yeah. They didn't even necessarily understand viruses very well at that time, like, what they were or how they operated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, discovery of DNA was around the same time, basically. Um, yeah, those postulates and that his... And that Gross's experiments didn't follow those postulates are one of the reasons why a lot of people didn't believe this research. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's really hard to culture viruses on their own because they need to utilize someone's cells yeah. for, for their own reproduction. Yeah, exactly. So they Or replication, I guess. So they yeah. can't replicate and form a monoculture right. if they're uh, isolated. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so, and also, like, like we said earlier, they can be asymptomatic, or individuals mm-hmm. can be asymptomatic and be affected. And, yeah, people were kind of mean to him and would, like, not shake his hand at <laughs> meetings and stuff, this one paper said. In 1952, so one year after he published these papers, mm-hmm. Sarah started attempting to confirm his results. Okay. But instead of finding that she was could pass on leukemia, which is... Is a, she still a gynecologist? No, no, no. Okay. She's working at the NIH. Okay. It's good she's not trying to do those experiments as a gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, HPV, right? Actually, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a virus that causes cancer. Yeah. yeah. She's before her time. Yeah. It would have all come together <laughs> if she was like 40, 50 years yeah. later. I don't... I don't know if she ever actually studied HPV, but she did study a lot of different... Yeah. Yeah. So she's trying to confirm his work, but when she injects the leukemia into mice, they developed solid tumors instead of a blood cancer. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So that was weird, and... Um, she didn't know this, but Gross had actually found the same thing in some of his mice, but hadn't uh, published that yet. So I think they discovered it at the same time independently. They argue oh, no. <laughs> who discovered it first, I think for the rest of their lives, yeah. it seems. That makes sense. Yeah. Though both recognizing that, and both were successful scientists from here on out and both recognize the contributions of the other person. You gotta have a good beef. <laughs> but yeah, this was what essentially led to their competitive. That makes sense. Yeah. She got tumors sort of spontaneously after injecting these cells into the mice. And they're called parotid tumors, P A R O T I D, and that's a salivary gland. Okay. In in mammals. Okay. So they were growing, having growths, like, on their salivary. I know, these poor Poor fucking mice. Yeah. But no one was excited about it, even though (laughs) she was really excited about it. (laughs) Especially the mice. The mice were not excited about it. In 1952, later that year, she sent a letter to Ludwig Gross 
telling him she'd been following his work and was really interested in it. This is pre-rivalry. Gotcha. Um, I thought it was all a ruse. (laughs) (laughs) And he invited her to New York to visit his lab in the Bronx, where she could pick up some mice and observe his procedures. Okay. Because she um, couldn't get them to get leukemia. Okay. Her mice were just too healthy. They were just getting the tumors. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And she was like, how did you get them to get leukemia? So he was like, and this was also one of the problems with his work is no one could repeat them because these are super inbred strains of mice. So it was really... Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, she visited his lab in late January, 1953. And she says this is when she told him that she found the tumors. But he had already found the tumors. But neither of them will ever agree on it. <laughs> okay. Soon after, um, he published a few studies in which he demonstrated that he could remove the cells from the leukemic extract and just use purified extract and inject it and cause leukemia. So trying to show it's not in the mouse cell, it's something else. Gotcha. He also proposed that this agent, not using the word virus, could be passed vertically from mother to fetus. This is 1953, and people were still skeptical. I don't know why. Yeah. I think maybe just because it was hard to replicate. I have no idea. Did people con- think of viruses as something that w- was just so contagious that it didn't make sense to them maybe, that it would be? yeah. That would make I mean, sense. I guess... Like, if you think of viruses, people probably thought about, like, flu and stuff like that, and we hadn't yeah. gotten... I don't know how much people knew about, like, sexually transmitted or, like, no bloodborne. I don't think they knew... I don't even know if they knew what a virus was. Yeah. I guess... Yeah. It's kind of hard to say. Yeah. They, they could look... They could actually see some viruses okay. under a microscope. I know that. Yeah. Okay, at the same time, Sarah published a paper on her discovery that the virus causes tumors. And after this, they both admonished each other for not citing the others' papers. (laughs) (laughs) She decided she needed to culture the virus. So she was trying to fulfill that one postulate where... The disease has to be culturable or something. Okay. I forget exactly yeah. what it was, but she was like, I can't convince anyone of this until I culture it. Yeah. She was friends with the woman, Bernice Eddy, who also worked at the NIH, who I think I will cover another time. Ooh. I thought about doing both of them. Yeah. Because they discovered this thing together, mm-hmm. but Bernice's career was way more controversial. Nice. And I think it deserves her own story. Okay. Not that I don't think her science was controversial in the time it was. Anyway, we'll okay. get to her another day, I think. But they were friends and had both been working at the NIH for like over 10 years together. Okay. Bernice worked in a culture lab, uh, the NIH Biologics Control Laboratory. I don't know. And in 1956, Sarah approached Bernice for assistance in growing the agent that caused these parotid tumors. Gotcha. And she readily agreed. The two women rapidly started working together. Um, Bernice took the extracts from the tumor 
and grew them in monkey cells, which she had access to at her culturing place. Okay. And she also grew them in mouse embryo tissue culture. And somehow they measured the titer of virus. I, they must have figured out, this part is a little confusing to me, but they must have figured out how to measure, like, how much virus is in it gotcha. at some point. Um, but they figured out that they could get a lot, they could culture the, the virus in these cells. Okay, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. In 1958, Sarah and Bernice and another woman, um, Nanette Borges, published a paper on tumor agents and suggesting that the agent is a virus, finally. Okay. Like, well, Not every, calling it milk like, sheath or whatever. It's so weird because everyone in the field knew it was a virus. Yeah. They just weren't putting that in their published papers. To avoid, I don't know, grant agencies yeah. denying them things. Super crazy. In this paper and a multitude of other papers, they showed that the virus could produce 20 different types of mouse tumors. Oh, man. So basically, this virus was really good at causing cancer. And could produce tumors in other small mammals. They started injecting it into rabbits, into like... Uh, I don't know if they ever injected it into monkeys, but, yeah. like, rats, like, just anything that they were allowed to inject it into, they did. <laughs> Their neighbor, Sam. Yeah. Not Sam's into, cat. Actually, this virus doesn't cause cancer in humans. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And at uh, Bernice Eddy's suggestion, the virus was dubbed polyoma. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay. Or polyoma virus which means many tumors, and they named it the SE for Stuart Eddy polyoma virus. <laughs> um, actually, Sarah wanted to call it omnioma, uh-huh. but the virus never produced leukemia. It's a different virus, it seems, than the one that... Um, uh, gross man? Yeah. like he was. So he was working with a virus that caused leukemia and this same virus somehow. Gotcha. And I don't think he knew that. But yeah, since it didn't produce leukemia, they didn't want to say it was an omni. Yeah. So they called it polyoma. Gotcha. And they demonstrated that the virus causes cell necrosis, which is like death. Mm-hmm. Um, and proliferation, which I was confused by. It causes some cells to die, but it causes others to Well, like, cell, pro- like, cell proliferation, isn't that pretty much cancer? Like, yeah. If like, you have them proliferating... Faster than... Mm -hmm. And that it causes antibodies to be produced when injected into things. okay. So, naming the virus SE polyoma virus really upset Ludwig. (laughs) Because he had thought of it as kind of his virus, the parotid virus. And he felt he had precedent since he discovered it. And he kind of did discover... Was kind of the first person to discover Mm -hmm. it. But... Also, and there are a lot of, like, letters back and forth between (laughs) the two of them and friends, collaborators of theirs about who can call it what. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's all really interesting, this sort of social part of science. I don't know. But eventually, a lot of people were like, polyoma virus is a better name for it. (laughs) And they dropped the SE part. Yeah, so it didn't really matter. Yeah. And uh, though I will say, like, it seems like 
uh, Sarah Stewart and Bernice Eddy get most of the credit for discovering this virus when I think it's like 50-50. You should have gotten, gotten a little more. more credit. Which is um, against the usual. Yeah, not the normal. <laughs> yeah, it's usually biased the other way. But honestly, like, for some reason, people weren't believing him, and it took them culturing it for people to finally be like, yes, viruses cause cancer. So they, and their work was responsible for, this, yeah, yeah, that kind of confirmation, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And retrospectively, Bernice said that she regrets naming it the SC poliomavirus because he did find it first. And this was after Sarah had died, which, I mean, I, there's still a little bit more, but yeah. she says, um, Sarah was very aggressive. <laughs> we named it, but we probably shouldn't have. Mm. Yeah, Sarah would never admit it. She was always sparring with him. So, yeah. sort of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> after this, tumor-causing viruses became a huge stool. Stool. <laughs> okay. After this, people were like, oh, yeah, like, viruses can cause tumors. And everyone started studying it, and they became a huge tool in the study <laughs> of cancer. So, for instance, oncogenes, have you heard of those? They're genes associated with high cancer risk. Yeah. Um, were discovered in viruses. Like, viruses have genes that produce proteins okay. that cause cancer, basically. Gotcha. Yeah. And then they found similar genes in people's genomes. Gotcha. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. We know now, too, that these viruses work by inhibiting tumor-suppressing proteins. Okay. So there are proteins in our cells that, like, regulate cell division. And these viruses produce proteins that stop those proteins from regulating cell division. So then cell division just happens unheeded by anything. Gotcha. After this discovery, Stuart became the medical director of the National Cancer Cancer <laughs> Institute Lab of Oncology, and she spent the remainder of her life researching several oncogenic viruses, or viruses that cause cancer, like the Epstein-Barr virus... Hodgkin's disease and Burkitt's lymphoma. Which okay. I don't know the viruses that cause that, but supposedly you can get them. Yeah, those all seem familiar. I don't quite know what they do. Yeah, but I don't really either. Yeah. And as a U.S. Public Health Service Commission officer, her contributions to um, this field earned her the Federal Women's Award presented by uh, President Lyndon Johnson in 1965. She received a lot of other awards, like the Medical Men of Georgetown Award. I love all these, like, <laughs> like so not fun. sexist, but gendered awards. Given to women. Yeah. Like, oh, fine. Like, you're good enough to be a man. <laughs> I love the Grace Hopper one where it's, like, the first one and you still call it a, like, a male, a male award. award. And you're like, you can't have an inaugural no. one go to a woman and call it a male award. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> True. Um, I guess you can, because they did. But. She got a Doctor of Laws from New Mexico State University. Like a lawyer, a law degree from them. She needs to why. stop with the degrees. <laughs> no, like they gave it to oh, her. Oh, like um, 
What I think are, they were like, I guess you already have all the degrees. So we'll <laughs> just give you this last one. I think they gave it an to honorary her, yeah. degree. I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. She got a ton of degrees. I mean, awards <laughs> and degrees. Yeah. And she retired from the public health service in 1970 to become a full professor of pathology at Georgetown University. And she's 65 now. So, like, this all happened later in life. She didn't. Oh, she's even... still alive. No, not now. <laughs> okay. Sorry, now in the story. That That's always happens. I know. I'm always so puzzled. Yeah. Oh, she no. was born in 1905, yeah. I guess. And, like, she She'd got her MD when she was 40. Nice. And so she kind of, like, got this big break, like, later in mm-hmm. life. Yeah. However, so, she, yeah, she kind of retired at 65 and was teaching at Georgetown. But her health deteriorated Deteriorated. She actually had stomach cancer. Oh. So the thing she'd been fighting or, like, trying to study for so long, like, got her. Which I think she sort of knew. Yeah. On some level, because her family had it. And, yeah, super, yeah, sad. Um, She moved to New Smyrna Beach in Florida in 1974 to be with her two sisters. And she died of stomach cancer in 1976. Oh, okay. But a little bit more about her as a person, less science-y. Yeah. Um, in an obituary, Bernice Eddy, her collaborator, mm-hmm. said she was a forceful individual who did not let anything stand in her way if she could help it, but also described her as warm and saying she could make friends easily, though just not with Ludwig. <laughs> not with Ludwig. Um, and she was very devoted to her family she was a gracious hostess, enjoyed dancing, music, and travel. Her home is filled with art objects from many lands. And I guess um, she would travel with her mother a lot. Oh, that's yeah, nice. Sweet. And she really liked planning houses and having them built. Okay. Yeah. Just as like a little side, <laughs> yeah. nice little side like project. Of her obituary. Um, Does she have an architecture degree too? You know, she probably yeah. could have had one, honestly. Um... <laughs> And her favorite place was a vacation home on Chesapeake Bay. I guess she, like, really loved all the swans there and would talk about them a lot to people. John Utz wrote another obituary where he said she was interested in all fields of biology and is widely remembered for her concern and affection for the swans on the Chesapeake. (laughs) (laughs) Which she's widely remembered, like, that was the first time I saw that. So I was like... By him? Yeah. Nice. Anyway, yeah, so that is Sarah Stewart. There wasn't a lot about, at least without looking into her actual published papers, I couldn't find a lot of synopses of her later research, but it seemed like she studied these viruses that cause cancer for the rest of her career and just was obsessed with it. I mean... It's, like, an easy thing to get obsessed with. What yeah. There's the Tasmanian devil yeah. virus, where they uh, just bite each other's faces, yeah. and it's facial, a facial virus. Yeah. So that one's cool. Yeah, hepatitis. There's only eight, I think, in humans. Like, a couple hepatitises. I didn't realize hep- the, yeah. the hepatitis. They don't. <laughs> I, it's weird, like... I don't think they cause it in most people, sort of like HPV doesn't cause cancer in everyone, and different strains of it don't cause cancer in everyone. But I read that both hepatitis B and C, I think, can cause it. Are those the ones you get 
No, you don't get... Do you get vaccines? You do get vaccines for some hepatitis, but I don't know which ones. Okay. And, yeah, there's a couple other um, viruses that cause cancer in humans. Then there's feline leukemia. Yeah, oh. is... I think it's, like, airborne, because I know it's really easy. Or maybe it's, you know, licking, but it's very yeah. easy for cats to get it from each other. Yeah. And that causes cancer, I think. So sad. I know. Well. Well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least now people believe that yeah. they exist. Yeah. It took, like, 50 years for anyone to believe Yeah, we can't it. do anything about it if people don't accept that that's yeah. a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, she is the... Um, Mother or aunt of oncoviruses? <laughs> I don't know. The sister. The sister? Yeah, and Ludwig Gross is the brother. You know? I don't, think they, I don't think they'd want to be brother-sister. I want them to be friends. It's too late, but... <laughs> it's a little too late. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's Sarah Stewart. I love it. That's yeah. great. A breaky break? Yeah. You ready to... I'm ready to... Bam. All right, this is our women who work section. Yeah. Where we talk about badass women of today and tomorrow. Yeah. But mostly today. Yeah. Yeah. And whenever you listen to this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, I've got a couple shout outs. So I'm going to say the depressing one first. I'm going to give you the depressing one first. Oh, depressing. I thought you said pressing. No. I I mean, it's also pressing. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, it's a little bit pressing. So, okay. Shout out to Lillian Calderon Garcia Duenas, uh, who works at the University of Montana in Missoula. And she Mm. studies how particulate matter from air pollution, so (gasps) the super small particles from, like, engine exhaust and um, factory exhaust, etc., uh, how this air pollution might cause memory problems such as Alzheimer's. Oh my gosh. So, uh, previous work in her lab has found evidence of a link between pollution in cities and these brain plaques that are a sign of Alzheimer's. So if you yeah. look at somebody who has Alzheimer's, they have these brain plaques that are kind of indicative of that. And they're yeah. finding those more in uh, people who live in cities that are highly polluted. Oh. Great. Yes. So, in a recent paper that came out this month in Environmental Research, Calderon Garcia Duenas and colleagues look at 203 brains from people who died yeah. in Mexico City, from infants to middle-aged adults. So the whole range, yeah. They're like car crashes, stuff like yeah. that, accidents. Um, and they found that 99.5 percent of those brains had signs of Alzheimer plaque. Even infants? Yeah, even infants. <gasps> Whoa, I didn't know that. And they have these plaques that are thought to be a sign of Alzheimer's. Whoa. And so this work suggests that Alzheimer's can already start in early childhood and may be caused by super high levels of pollution. So that's my first oh my shout God. out. Super important because... I hope that means people will start wanting to pollute less. Yeah. For reasons unrelated to climate. Like, yeah. if people won't pollute less because of climate change, maybe reducing Alzheimer's will get people motivated to pollute less. I mean, hopefully. There's so many reasons that pollution has negative effects on human health that people haven't started. I know. That's true. Yeah. But, I mean, Alzheimer's is such a, I think... 
scary, terrifying, yeah. seemingly irreversible thing. Right. That it's scary in ways that like lung cancer aren't scary for some reason. Yeah, because you know potentially you could survive lung cancer even though it's very hard yeah. and not fun and expensive. Like whatever, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think hopefully this will kind of be evidence that people really need to yeah, focus on so pollution. Too. Yeah. Okay, so that was my depressing and uh, my depressing well, and pressing yeah. shout out I'll of the take week. It. Yeah. yeah. And she, I I, I looked up really more cool. stuff about um uh, Lillian Calderon Garcia Duenas. Yeah. And she seems like a very cool lady. So yes. shout out to her. Yeah. And then shout out number two. So one of the things that people think is unique to humans is uh, birth attendance. What? So people <laughs> helping like, women have oh, birth. Oh, like a doula. Like a doula or yeah. a midwife right. or like hospitals. Like oh, us not just yeah. going and oh, birthing I alone. See. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the fact that we need help. And a lot of mm-hmm. people think that this is because human human births can be really dangerous alone because uh-huh. we have such big heads and we have small pelvises <laughs> and it just seems like it was a bad design. Big heads, small openings, yeah. shoulders. It's just yeah. all, it's all wrong. Uh, staying in the fluids when you have to come out of them eventually. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah. Well, it's a whole other conversation, <laughs> but yes. Um, but this month in evolution and human behavior, Elisa Demuro. Uh, and colleagues at the Natural History Museum of the University of Pisa in Italy uh, have filmed bonobos attending births. <gasps> yes! So bonobos oh my God. bonobos and chimpanzees are our closest living relatives. Yeah. Um, and bonobos, besides being kinky fucks, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're also... So they're the only, many orgies. <laughs> so many, they just have orgies. Um they're the only, I think, other organism that has sex facing each other. They don't do it doggy style. Oh my god! <laughs> they, they face each other, <laughs> and I think it's just right. humans and bonobos that do that. Huh? You mean in mammals? In mammals, I don't know. Butts I'm not are, like can just be butt yeah, to but yeah, they can just do be doing whatever. Um, Bugs are weird. Yeah. <laughs> but so bonobos have are, are very closely related to us and also have a bunch of strange kind of yeah sexuality that mimics that that's related yeah, to what yeah. humans do so and they're very they're even like have more social, very, very social. hierarchies mm-hmm. similar to ours yes. too yeah so um elisa demuro and colleagues on three different occasions in uh, European primate parks, which apparently is a thing. What? There's just, like, big primate parks in Europe. What? I don't know. I want to go. I know. So they found uh, female bonobos standing close to a female giving birth and doing a variety of different things, like keeping insects away from their vagina. <laughs> yes! That's so cool! <laughs> Visually inspecting their vagina. <laughs> and then even holding the elf. The Do we infant need a disclaimer for this. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, and there there's even like I watched some videos of like the and mother giving birth okay. and climbing down a rope. Whoa. So like the the infant's half out. Oh my And then gosh. this other uh, bonobo That's lady like, is like holding the head Did of you this ever infant. See, um, neighbors one? 
I know we saw Neighbors 2 together. How? Not my proud. I have no idea how this is going to be related. You didn't see Neighbors 1. I guess not. There's a scene where they're at a frat party and there's a one of the friend, the female friend. You know, like there's there's two couples and they're Uh friends. Yeah. The couple that they're friends with, the woman's pregnant and the baby's just halfway out of her at the party. Seems very it's, bad. It's a little disturbing. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds similar. Yeah. Though. That's okay. what I thought of. Bonobos reenact. I watched that movie on a plane and I regretted watching it. <laughs> <laughs> Bonobos reenact Neighbors 1. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so. Just like us. <laughs> there's some great, great videos you can wow, watch. that's really cool. But because Bonobos can safely give birth on their own, and it's not dangerous. Yeah. They're trying to figure out why, why they need. Is it just a social thing? Hmm. Uh, is it for bonding? Is it you know more healthy to have another bonobo lady helping yeah. you out? Maybe it's healthier for the baby, even yeah. if it's not dangerous for the female. Yeah, like if they're getting all those parasites away, <laughs> <laughs> or like climbing down a rope. <laughs> while you have a fetus like half out of I guess it's not a fetus at that point an infant yeah. half out of you seems like a risky move right yeah. it seems yeah but some people would call that irresponsible parenting I won't you know what say if that. I ever give birth that's how I'm gonna do it <laughs> there's <laughs> like water show. baths there's <laughs> rope climbing b- birth oh gosh yeah so yeah. those those are my awesome. those are my shout yeah, outs. Yeah, nice. I love it. That's so good. So different. Yeah, such very... different shout outs. <laughs> but I definitely uh, want to go to these European primate yeah, parks. Yeah, me too. They sound great. All right. Well, I think that that'll yeah, about do it. Sweet. So uh, our theme song was "Mary Annie" by Artichoke. Follow us on Twitter at. Stem Fatal Pod. Pod. (laughs) And then also please rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find us. Yeah, and perhaps by this point we'll have new artwork by our dear, dear, beautiful friend, Caitlin Friesen. Yeah. Yeah. And we love her. Yes, we do. (laughs) She's also a cool Steminist. She is. Anyway, thanks, Caitlin. Thanks. All right, bye, everyone. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil 